you don't believe this right now, Cox. He said, but you're going to meet some of the best people you've ever met in your life in federal prison. He was in prison. You're going to make better, have better relationships in prison. He said, and you're going to meet a group of guys and surround yourself by a group of guys that are amazing. He said, and there will be a time when you will be laughing your ass off and having a blast. And you will think there is nowhere I'd rather be right now. And I remember I looked at him and I go, you're fucking crazy. That's never going to happen. And he goes, well, we'll see. I wish to God I had that guy's name so I could just write him a letter and tell him he was right. Hey, this is Matt Cox, and I I appreciate you checking this out. Uh, Basically, at this point, I've already done a whole playlist, uh, a whole series on me, on basically my, my crime spree, according to the U.S. Attorney's Office. So... Uh, and and how I ended up in federal prison. So at this point in that series or in the, my, the second part of that series, I'm going to talk about me going to federal prison or – and you know I've already talked about what got me to, got me in this situation. So I've been arrested. I get arrested uh, November 16th, uh, 2006. Uh, I am shipped to – I'm basically I'm held – I'm brought to – brought to uh immediately they bring me to the the secret service uh field office in uh, nashville that's where uh, you know that's where um that's where i'm i'm after they arrest me they bring me there they handcuff me to a desk the secret service agent comes in uh from atlanta um so i'm there for hours waiting for her to fly in on like an emergency flight or or she might have driven i don't know she comes in she tries to have a conversation with me and i say look i really would prefer to talk to an attorney first and she says okay that's your right i understand that and keep in mind everybody's being real nice like they're ready to get me you know mcdonald's you know what do you want we can we can go to subway and get you a sandwich we can go to mcdonald's what do you you want us to go go get you some coffee at starbucks like everybody's very nice at this point so I, I I don't say anything, and they they then transport me. the The U.S. Marshals comes in, and they transport me to uh, someplace in God. I don't even remember what state it was. Anyway, they they drive me for like an hour away to put me in a marshal's holdover. So I go to the marshal's holdover, and I remember when I walked in the room. I know I'm. I mean, at this point, they grabbed me. I know I'm done. Immediately, Amanda, the chick that I was grabbed with, the girl that I was living with, she immediately went straight to our um, – we had a, a safety deposit box. She went immediately to the safety deposit box, grabbed a bunch of paperwork, that, and went straight to the Secret Service agent's office and gave them the paperwork and a bunch of uh, passports and things that were there. I think there was – three or four or maybe five or six. I don't know how many were, were that she had. Uh, she gives them the, them those passports. They show me the passports. They've let me, they let me know immediately like, hey, she's already given up stuff. So pretty much know that she's already going to, um, you know, she's already going to cooperate against me, you know, which is fine. She's got a, a she's got a son and, and I totally get that. So I, the marshals show up, they transport me to the U.S. Marshals holdover. The media's, 
all over that, all over my arrest because I was number one on the Secret Service's most wanted list. And so it was a big deal in Nashville. So all the local news stations are, are, are out in force. Uh, there's articles being written. And what happens is I go and I, as soon as I walk in, they, they dress me out. You have to understand, like I've never been dressed out. Like I've never been stripped down. They, they strip you down. They, they spray you down with all kinds of chemicals. They take your fingerprints. I mean, they photograph you. Like it's, it's, it's an ordeal. It's especially an ordeal if you've never been through it. Like seeing it happen is one thing, but really being treated like cattle and pushed around and told to do this and told to do this and talked to just like you're a dog. Like most people have never really had someone speak to them that way. So I was just like in shock. And by the time I actually get dressed in my jumpsuit and everything and they give you your blanket and your your stuff, like no pillow or anything, you get like a blanket and a bunch of, you know, your some other, you know, whatever, soap and crap that they give you, and they walk you into an actual unit. When I walked into the unit, there were 10 or 15 guys there. There's one TV, and I remember I walk into the unit, and I look up. As soon as they, like, they un, you have to go put your hands through, and they unshackle you, and they take your stuff off, and now, you know, it all gets yanked through the door, and so now you're standing there, and you turn around, and there's 15 guys staring at you, and I remember... They're all staring right at me. And I remember thinking, <laughs> I was like, this is when they rape you. But, <laughs> and I was just like, oh my God, these guys look tough. I mean, they've got tattoos. One guy had tattoos on his face. He had horns on his head. He had all kinds of tattoos on his face. His whole body's tattooed. But I just remember thinking, holy shit, like everybody's staring at me. And one of the guys points at the TV and he goes, yo, man. You were just on TV. And another guy goes, yeah, man, you like that, bro. Like you took, you got millions and millions. You took these motherfuckers. Yeah. Bro. And they all kind of like, yeah, bro. Yeah. And I remember thinking I was like, like I was glad that it wasn't a bad situation as far as these guys looking at me, you know, wanting to kill me. But it was also just, I knew just how much trouble I was in because the news, I just been on the news. So I, I walk in. I lay down and I just go to sleep. Like I laid there for as long as time and I eventually just go to sleep. They bring dinner. I don't get dinner. I don't get up. Just take my take my food. I, I go to sleep. I go into this huge, like this, this super depression. And I slept for about, about a couple days. And really by the next morning, I woke up and I had this splitting headache, splitting headache. So I think like the next day I woke up and I tried to call, I tried to call my, my parents and I remember the the guy with the tattoos he was my bunkie so he I go and I'm trying I remember this I was trying to use the phone and I'm trying to punch in the phone and it wouldn't do anything so this this black guy comes up to me first and he goes and he says he goes yo man you uh need uh try to call your peeps and I went what try to call your peeps I said what your peeps, man, your peeps. And I thought, what the fuck? So I started looking around. Like, I don't have any idea what this guy's saying. And I'm looking around. Like, is somebody, to, like, I he's, I know he's speaking English, but I can't understand what he's saying. And so the white guy comes with the tattoos on his face, comes over, and he goes, your people. And I went, people? He goes, your family. He's trying to say, are you trying to call your family? And I went, oh, yeah, yeah. And so he goes, I got this. And the black guy goes, all right. 
and walks off. I mean, you have to understand, I've like at that point, this is 2006. Like, there's not a lot of social media. There's not a lot of YouTube. There, really, YouTube had just kind of come out. Facebook had just come out. Like, we'd been out a few months. Um, there's no smartphone. So, as far as my interaction with other cultures was extremely limited. You know, the like the only people I knew that weren't really like middle class or upper class white people were people that basically did construction work on my house, I, houses, or did were you know um, roofers or and and they were always very polite and they always spoke very good English. And now I'm in a situation where I mean, literally, I can't understand what people are saying. I mean, I do now. That was actually a really fucked up situation because within about a year or so, I remember being behind a couple guys in prison. These two black guys are were or I was standing behind them in prison, and I remember they said the one guy goes, "Yo, man, what you know? Uh, uh, how you fall? How you fall?" And I, I was just standing in, in the chow. I was in the chow long chow line standing behind him and one guy goes how you fall man how you fall he goes shit he's over a dove and two stacks and and he goes no i'm saying and he goes yeah man i yeah i get you i got you i got you and and so when he said i do you know what i'm saying i thought i do know what he's saying that over two grand and a dove which is a key of coke so another black guy snitched on him and I knew as soon as he said it, I was like, "Oh wow, he got snitched on by some guy he knows uh, over a you know over a you know over a, a key of coke and, and a couple thousand. And I thought, and the fact that I knew what he was saying was like, "Wow, like I can't believe that I know what what that means because two year, couple years earlier, I would have had no clue what that guy was saying, and I knew exactly. I remember thinking, "I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. It was bad." So is that bad to say? Am I no? It's bad. It's fucked up though, right? It's <laughs> but at that time I couldn't even communicate with someone to help me use the phone. So the white guy goes, "Yeah, listen, man. He goes, you got to punch in your pin number. Like, where's my pin number? He goes, here. It's right here on your bracelet because they had given me like a bracelet. So I punched in my pin number and he explains how the phone. Like, there's no instructions. They the the staff just expects that the un other inmates will help one another. So there was no inmate handbook. There's nothing like that. So this guy helps me call my family. I call my – try and call my parents. My parents were not around. I then turn around and I call my sister. My sister gets on the phone and she's like, look, I, I know you were arrested. Like she, by that point, it's been on television. People have already called her. She said, uh, where are you? I tell her where I, where I am. She says, uh, um, was I in – Kentucky or something like they drove me out of out of the state of Tennessee I knew that so uh, I told I tell her um and you know she says look you know uh I'll tell mom I'm gonna wait we're gonna wait and tell mom and dad because they they were hadn't come back from they were on like a, a some kind of cruise or something anyway so let's say I spent about a week or two in it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
Got your happy price, price line. That, in that holding facility. After a couple weeks, like I have a lawyer that comes and he sees me and tells me, you know, you're done. You, you've got a ton. You're, you're in a lot of trouble. Like you, you, you're, you're looking at, I forget what he said, like 20 years or something. It was outrageous. And he said, you know, I'm going to, he said, well, I'm going to waive the bond hearing because they're extraditing you to, to Tennessee. So I said, okay. So two weeks later, I get put on a bus. I get driven to some other facility, which was in, uh, I want to say it was in, I want to say it was in Mississippi. So they drove me to like Mississippi and well, I was in Mississippi for a couple weeks and it was at a G I want to say it was a geo facility, which is a private facility and they housed inmates from all over the country. So I was there for a couple weeks and I remember too, I remember meeting a guy there that had been busted for, he'd been in the prison before. I remember his girlfriend kept writing him and he kept reading the envelope. He would read the, he would read the letters. He was my celly. Cause if basically if you're a white guy, you typically end up but getting celled with a white guy. So I ended up getting, uh, I'm in a, I got in a cell that time and, and the guy got, kept getting letters from his girlfriend and he would read the letter and he would look at the pictures she'd send and then he'd tear everything up and throw it away. And I was like, you know, I said, why do you keep doing that? And he said, well, you know, I, I, I broke up with her. This is my, my ex-girlfriend. I broke up with her. I said, well, she keeps writing you like every day. He, this guy's getting one or two letters a day. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I know. And I said, yeah, but she keeps writing you. Why is she writing you? And he goes, well, I mean, we were, you know, we've been dating a couple of years. He said, and I got caught. He got caught. I don't know. He said, like, obviously he said he didn't do anything. He said he was basically driving a guy around that was delivering drugs or whatever. So the point is, is I think he got like five years or something. And he said, he said, yeah, I, I broke up with her. I was like, why'd you break up with her? And he goes, I broke up with her because he said, I've been in prison before and it's it's hard to maintain a relationship. She she wants us to have a relationship. He said, but the problem is, is that she'll be there for six months, but in six months from now, she's going to start seeing somebody else and she'll try and hide it for six months. And then eventually he said, but I'll know it and I'll feel it. He said, I don't want to be one of those guys on the telephone Saturday morning screaming into the phone, where the fuck were you at last night? Why didn't you answer the phone? Because he is, when I know she was on a date with her boyfriend. He said, you know, and I, I don't want to be that guy. And it's, it's, it makes my, it would make my time a lot harder. So I broke up with her. I told her we're breaking up. And, um, if I, you're available when I get out, we'll start seeing each other again. And I was like, wow, bro. Like that's, that's, you know, like that's where I'm at. Like these guys, like this guy knows he said, he said, look, you know, and, and he told me something that was very, very true. I remember he told me that, um, he said, he said, the only kinds, the only women that stick with you when you're incarcerated are women that have been married to a guy for several years. Maybe they have a couple of years, a couple of kids, maybe it's five or 10 years, but the guy's a multimillionaire. Like if you still have millions and millions of dollars left over and businesses and you're you know, you can still support your wife while you're incarcerated, then your wife will visit you for four or five years. And he said, other than that, you're the, they're going to leave. He was like, or unless you're maybe he said, maybe she'll stay if she's from South America or something. Like you're married to a South American. They're very family oriented. Like this guy had really laid it out. And the thing is, I remember thinking to himself, that's not true. But the truth is, is over the course of the next 12 years, he was absolutely right. 
The only people I know where their wives stayed with them the entire time were guys that were millionaires, had millions of dollars, and still had money when they went to prison. They went to prison for three years or four years or five years. I know a couple guys that have. Yeah. Red Bull. Red Bull's wife only stayed. So I we knew a guy named uh, Andrew Levinson uh, who was a con man, um, a great con man, actually. And yeah, <laughs> he um, so Levinson's wife stayed, but Levinson's wife was from Peru. So she stayed. She had a daughter with him. She was with him in the, when things were up and she's going to stay with him and she wasn't going to leave him. Yeah, he actually met. Yeah, he actually met her at a bus stop. She was just, yeah, pulled in it up in his Bentley. She was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, so, anyway, so I end up eventually. I, I, this guy, you know, another thing that you, this is this is really funny. So I, anyway, I end up going, getting shipped to oh, I uh, get flown to Oklahoma. So they put me on Con Air. Con Air is nothing like you think it is. It's not like the movie Con Air. It's a regular commercial air, uh, airplane. You pull up in a van with whatever, eight other guys. I remember I was with a, I was with a former, I want to say he, he was a police officer. He was a, 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 an, a, like a, not a DEA agent, but I think he was a, just a, a task force agent. And he was a crooked and he was in the, in the truck with me. So, and we were talking, we talked a few times. He was in my unit. We talked a few times and, and I was one of the few people that knew he was a cop. So we get, we get all the way to the airport and they unload several buses and several vans filled with inmates. Some of the buses are buses, like they've got like 30 inmates on them. So they unload us. Uh, the marshals are all standing around this massive plane. They've all got shotguns. They're all yelling at you to get in line, do this, do that. They're calling out names. Then they slowly call your name. They, they pat you down a couple times. They walk you into the plane. Like when you get in the plane, you've basically got a paper outfit on. So you get in the plane and you you get a, you know you you sit down and i mean it's surreal it's just like it's almost like nazi um uh efficiency you know like it's it's they're just that good and brutal at at being able to corral you and get you into a spot and these guys are holding shotguns and no doubt in my mind they love to shoot you like you can you can see it in their face they're desperate for you to do something and so even the tough guys don't do anything like they, they don't mouth off because they know it's a losing situation. So you get on the plane and then the plane takes off. The plane is horrendous. The, it, it stinks. People have pissed in their seats. It's disgusting. And but you get up there and the plane takes off and it's got 150 guys in it or 200 or whatever that plane takes. And they they fly it up and then. Whatever, 45 minutes or an hour later, you land in Oklahoma City. And Oklahoma City is a, a holdover that's run by the uh, – I, I want to say it's the U.S. Marshals or possibly Bureau of Prisons. I think it's the U.S. Marshals though. The plane literally lands at the airport. So it lands and you get directly off of the plane and go straight into the holdover, which is – I want to say it's maybe a four-story building. I could probably look it up. I might be wrong, but I think it's four, four or five stories or something. Listen, it was freezing cold outside. I mean freezing. Uh, freezing everywhere you went. It was it was snowing out. I got there sometime in, I want to say, early January by this point. Uh, so I, it was early January. Got there. Stayed there 10 days. 
Um, remember, met a mobster that had gone to prison. He'd beaten several murder charges and then lost on racketeering and gotten like 30 years or something and was still fighting. And and he was just telling me how dirty the feds are. And he was just – it was funny because he was like right out – this was before I'd met any guys like this. Like now I know exactly what they are and who they are and what they're about. And But it was like the first time – it was like meeting someone from The Sopranos. Like he, he was that it – was, he was straight out of central casting. Like, hey, send me a guy that's a mobster. That was this guy. He was perfect. And he he so he he was going on about how dirty the feds are, the feds, these dirty bastards. They fucking and I was just like, Jesus, like this guy's really laying it on thick with the mob thing. But he was, he was a mobster, and that's they all sound like that. So uh I was there for about 10 days, and at eventually they call my name. They shackled me up. You know, when they shackle you, every time you go anywhere, they shackle your legs, your ankles. They, they put the chains on you. At that point, I had a metal box. They have a box that holds you like this. They put a, a waist chain around you so you're tied. You're, you can't really move your, your hands. And it's, it's your chain from here. The chain wraps around your waist. Then it goes down to your the, the shackles, which are around your ankles. And then that chain goes to a, the guy in front of you. I mean, you really are like just interconnected, like a like a big like. If one guy fell down the stairs, he's gonna probably yank everybody else down. Like you're all gonna. Um. So anyway, we end up. I'm end up in uh, Oklahoma City, the holdover for. I, I get a. I'm in a cell again for whatever it was, two weeks. You know, and and by this point now it's it's. It's been a well. I think I was there for ten days, so whatever, roughly two two weeks. So I was in there too with another guy who'd done like thirty years. And I mean, you you start to talk to these guys who are getting thirty years, twenty years, fifteen years. Like this guy's a bank robber. He was robbing, you know, banks and this. I mean, you know, you start to hear these stories, and they're just amazing. And uh, anyway, I I end up. So I end up going getting back on the plane. I get flown to Jacksonville. From Jacksonville, they put me in a facility for like the night. Then they put me on a bus and they drive me all the way to, I think I went to um, Tallahassee. Stayed the holdover in Tallahassee for a couple of days. Then I think I went, then I went to uh, Union City. So I was in Union City. And so it literally took me, I think, a total of six weeks before I got to my final destination, which was Union City. And I actually moved from Union City. At some point, I ended up going to Atlanta City Detention Center. They call it ACDC. But I was in Union City, and at that point, the, U- the U.S. Marshals had a holdover there. Uh, they closed it eventually because there's so many violations. Like it was, it was just disgusting. So I went in there, and. I remember there was a guy I met there. Man, this guy was interesting. He had used identity theft to steal a dealer's license so he could buy weapons. And then he was selling those weapons in like New York or something. So he'd buy tons of weapons down here using a dealer's license and drive up to New York and sell them in New York and then drive back. And he'd been done it for a while. Eventually they caught him and he actually got into a shootout with the cops. This is a guy that was, I remember he and the cops were shooting at each other. And one cop, he was actually chasing the cop around the car, shooting at him. 
and he said he finally got right on top of him and he pulled the gun and and pulled the trigger and it went click, click, click. And he was like, damn, almost had him. And I thought, Jesus, fuck, almost had him. Like it's, it's, that's just, yeah. Anyway, interesting guy. And I remember him telling me, like, these are all like, like to me, these are all like this, this whole process of getting to the point where I get to Atlanta was like a process of a learning experience. It lowered my expectation. It raised my awareness of how much, how dangerous the situation was. And how you know, and 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 how serious the situation was. Um. But I, 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 the one guy, the guy who had chased the the cop around the car, I was just sitting there. I remember sitting there thinking, I can't do this. And and I remember he he was, what's up, bro? And I said, man, man. I said, I just, I, I don't think I can do this. And I remember he's the guy. He looked at me and he said, well, that's the great thing about this. You don't have to do it. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, you don't have to do it. I said, what? Prison? And he goes, yeah. He said, you don't, he said, he said, you don't have to do the, the, this. He said, they're going to make you do it. He goes, it's effortless on your part. You don't have to try and try and do the time. He said, you just, he said, just do what you're told and keep yourself entertained. He said, that's it. He said, so you don't have to try. He said, so, you know, you don't have to worry about it. And I was just like, like I didn't, I was like, what? I was like, I remember thinking that was a horrible thing to say, but, but the truth is he was absolutely right. Most of my time in prison was just trying to keep myself entertained. If they said it's chow, you go to chow. If they said, do this, you do this. You don't have to think about anything. It really is one of those few times in your life, where, like you're, you're an adult, but you're taken care of, you know, but you're taken care of by really shitty people and you're not taken care of well, but they're not going to let you die. So I remember the second thing he told me was, because I was like, bro, how, because that, that guy had actually done like 10 years in the state or had he done 10 years in the Fed and he was going to the state and had, he was doing, go, he had a few more years left. And he told me, um, he had told me that he said, I know you, you think this is like the worst because you're at the beginning. He's like, I'm at the end. So it's good. He goes, I'm over the hump. Once you're over the hump, he said, things get a lot easier. He said, uh, he said, but you don't b- believe this right now. He said, I'm going to tell you something. You ain't, you're not going to believe it. And it's funny because those, these guys that look like, you know, they got tattoos on their face. They're missing. They've been shot three times. They, they talk like they were raised. They were all raised in like the projects or, you know, trailer parks. And, and, and they, they just like, they, they, they didn't graduate high school and they, you know, they're just, and a lot of them are just brutal thugs and, and they're, you know, they, they, have no manners they don't say please they don't say thank you like they're just they're just brutes they have wisdom they and in this situation they excelled and so every once in a while one of these guys would say something to me and i would just go wow like even if it didn't make sense right there right at that moment that's one of the things this guy said to me was he said you don't believe this right now cox he said but you're going to meet some of the best people you've ever met in your life in federal prison. He was in prison. You're going to make better, have better relationships in prison. He said, and you're going to meet a group of guys and surround yourself by a group of guys that are amazing. He said, and there will be a time when you will be laughing your ass off. 
and having a blast. And you will think there is nowhere I'd rather be right now. And I remember I looked at him and I go, you're fucking crazy. That's never going to happen. And he goes, well, we'll see. I wish to God I had that guy's name so I could just write him a letter and tell him he was right. He was right about five years later. It took five years where I was playing risk with a bunch of guys at the low security prison, a bunch of guys that I just thought were great. And there was like four or five of us and we're, we're playing the game, the board game risk. We've been playing for like four hours and we used to play like every, uh, every weekend and we're sitting there. There are guys at the prison that sell sodas. They sell coffee. They sell hot dogs. They sell food on the rec yard. So we're on the rec yard playing risk, sitting around the table. There's guys running around, bringing us hot dogs. There's guys bringing us soda. Keep in mind, there's a thousand people on the rec yard. It's like a carnival. Guys are screaming in the background. Guys are playing music. They're bringing us cold sodas and we're drinking sodas and we're playing. We're eating popcorn and we're, we're playing. We're, we're eating hot dogs and we're playing risk and we're screaming at each other like this guy's invading this guy's country and we're screaming like you, that's bullshit. We had an agreement. We have a pact. Like we're yelling at each other and we're rolling dice and we're la- one time and at one point. I remember laughing so hard I couldn't breathe. These guys were so funny and they were so cool and they were so great. I had such great relationships with them. And I remember thinking, this is great. This is amazing. This, I'm having a black, this is, is a great time. These are great guys. And for just a second, I thought there's nowhere I'd want else I'd want to be. And I remember thinking about that guy at Union City that told me that and thinking, motherfucker. That guy's right. He's right. Some of the best relationships I've ever had, I started in federal prison. And it's because typically after a while, as you meet somebody, you get to know them. You realize what they're about and that you're all on equal footing and that they don't want anything from you. You know, you you just end up being friends. So... You remove all those exterior factors that cause some friendships for the wrong reasons or put you together for the wrong reasons or the right reasons. You remove those and you're just guys hanging out and you very quickly get to figure out who you like and who you don't. And I had a group of guys that I hung out with that were great. So back to Union City. I'm in Union City. My lawyer comes to see me one day. So my lawyer finally comes to see me. Her name is Millie. Um, She was a public defender. And a lot of people will tell you, like, public defenders suck. So here's the thing with public defenders. In the state, most state public offenders are pretty bad, right? Like, they're new. They don't really know what they're doing. They just want you to take a plea. They don't want to go to trial. In the federal system, it's actually the public defender's offices are actually private, uh, private agencies that are funded by the federal government. And so they're given, you know, they like they get so much money for a case. If a case is a complicated case, they get so much more money. If a case goes to trial, they get more money. If a case, like, so they get they get certain amounts for different types of cases and the com- complexity of that case. So they're actually paid well. So the public defender's office gets paid a certain fund. Most public defenders make between eighty to a hundred thousand dollars a year, sometimes more, uh, depending on how long they've been there. Well, so th- they're not bad attorneys, 
all right? $100,000 a year in Georgia is a good chunk of money. That's a lot of money. You can live very well in the South for $100,000 a year. So this was, I'm sure it's much higher now. This was 50. About what, 15, 16 years ago. So my lawyer shows up, Millie. She shows up and she says, and she she says, Hi, my name's your lawyer. We meet. I get taken out of the unit. You you go to a little lawyer's room. You meet with that person. I meet with her. She's very nice. And I remember she said, So you've got some problems. She said, They said you've stolen $26 million. I was like, that's a lie. So first she reads off my charges and they're outrageous. Like I had never heard my charges. By this point, I've been indicted in multiple jurisdictions. Like now they've like they've had time to rally the troops, like the Secret Service and FBI, and they, they've all you know they, they've all figured out what we're going to do, how we're going to hammer this guy, what are we going to do? They've consolidated the cases. I've got a U.S. attorney. I mean, it's it's rough. So they come out of the gate, and I'm just it's like money laundering, conspiracy to launder mo- uh, money, um, conspiracy for bank fraud, bank fraud, uh, aggravated identity theft. Uh, conspiracy to uh, commit financial institution fraud, financial institution fraud, social security fraud, social security document fraud, U.S. document fraud, um, passport fraud, use of a fraudulent passport. Um, I mean, l- listen, wire fraud. Uh, what else? Mail fraud, conspiracy to commit wire fraud. I mean, l- there's four or five other charges in there. Like it, it's it's rough. And then the charges aren't even the real problem. Like you can get charged for like let's say half a million dollars in bank fraud and not even have to go to prison. Well, just if that was your only charge, the problem is the enhancements. They start adding on enhancements, more than 50 victims, more than a million dollars from one financial institution, uh, obstruction of justice, uh, changing jurisdictions to evade detection, sophisticated means, using a, uh, using a specialty device in furtherance of your crime, uh, you know, on, uh, you know, on and on and on. And as she's adding it up, it's becoming insane. Uh, her initial numbers were, you're looking at 15, 15, 15 to 16 years or something like that. I forget. And I was like, that's, that's insane. Like I didn't kill anybody. I didn't harm anybody. I didn't even hurt anybody's feelings. Like I never used harsh language. Like, what do you, this is, this is nuts. And I didn't steal $26 million. I don't have $26 million. And so she goes, she, she takes, listens to everything I say. She leaves. She calls the U S attorney. She comes back and she says that, you know, the FBI is saying it's whatever, $11.5 million for this. U.S. Attorney, or Secret Service is saying it's another three and a half million dollars or four and a half million dollars for, for that. They're saying it's forty million dollars for this. It's like they start. I'm like forty million. They're like, yeah, it's like forty million for your finance, your mortgage company. They they want to hit you with money laundering for that. Like it, it gets, it just becomes insane, the amount of money. Of, of and then they they I argue about the twenty six year, uh, twenty six million. Like by this point, they the second time she came back, she came back and she said they dropped it down to like. I want to say 20 million or 22 million. Then she came back and they dropped it down to 15 million. Um, I could get into the, the 40 million and that my mortgage company did, uh, but they pretty much dropped that almost immediately. That actually happens later. I don't want to get too technical, but they're too, you know, I don't want too chronological, but the point is, is they dropped the 40 million. So I'm down to $15 million. This takes months by the way. So it's months. Millie's advice was, 
you are 100% guilty. Like there's no doubt about that. Uh, I remember, it's funny. It's funny because I remember I, I had gone to, I'd gone to court at one point after I'd been in Union City for a week, about a week or so. I'd been to court for a bond hearing, which is comical because when I walk, when I go in and I meet with Millie, I'm like, what, what is this? What's going on? She says, this is your bond hearing. And I go, I, I, am I going to get bond? And she goes, no, you're not going to get bond. She says, but they have to have the hearing. And you have to think the U.S. Attorney's Office and the Secret Service, they, they actually have these huge bill, like these huge boards of my pictures of my face before I had plastic surgery and after I had plastic surgery. They have other pictures of my wanted posters. They have pictures of me going in and out of the bank. They have multiple posters of all my different IDs. Like there's, they've got to have 20 IDs. And I'm looking at it, and it not, not to mention the passports. So I've had like two dozen passports. So I looked at her and I said, well, and it, by the way, the, the courtroom is full of reporters. And I remember I looked at her and I went, okay, well, I'm not going to get bond. Why, am I, why are we here? She goes, well, we can waive it if you want. And I went, well, if I can't get bond, and she goes, if they gave you bond, what would you do? I go, I'd leave. I'd run. And she goes, she started laughing. I said, I'm not going to lie. I said, I said, you let me out of this place. You're never seeing me again. And she just started laughing. She goes, okay. She said, well, look, she goes, they're not giving you bond anyway. She goes, let's just waive it. So she, you know, they call the court. They do this. The U.S. attorney goes on and on so that the reporters can see how, how doomed I am. She stands up and says, your honor, we just want to waive this. We're just going to waive it. So they waive it. <sighs> anyway, they, they end up all right. So they end up waving they end up waving oh shit. Sorry. They end up waving the uh the bond hearing. We wave the bond hearing. I leave. I go back. Uh, Millie keeps coming back and forth. We negotiate with the US attorney's office. And her basically what she said was, You're just doomed. Like it, you know, you 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 cannot go to trial because you're one hundred percent guilty. There's nothing you can do. You're guilty. Okay, I get it. So you basically have no choice but to cooperate. And I was like, okay. She said, I said, I, I understand. I said, but you know, what, who am I cooperating against? And she explains to me that basically she said, apparently she is, there's a ton of people in Tampa, Florida on your, not this, you know, there's multiple cases. She's not the Georgia case, but the Tampa case. And you have to understand there's a Tampa case. There's an Orlando case. There's a case in Clearwater. There is a case in South Carolina. There's a case in Nashville. There's a case in Georgia. So she's like, you know, she says, so the one in Tampa, she goes, there's multiple people that are willing to uh, cooperate against you. She said they've investigated. They've talked to like tw- they got like twelve people that are all ready to 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 cooperate. She said you can't go to trial because you're guilty and you'll get, you know, you'll get a hundred, you know, you'll get thirty years easily get 30 years she said and they can always st- what they call stack they can stack your charges and you can i think i could get up to i think if they stacked all the charges the press was saying it was 154 years or something but she said i remember when she said this she goes she goes i said they're saying 154 years she said, i know but that's ridiculous she said something so that's not really how it works she goes even if they stack the charges they can't stack the multiple charges she goes, so the most you can get is 54 years for what um so she says but look it doesn't matter she said the truth is she said most likely most of those would have been run run concurrently so at the same time 
or sorry, concurrent, consecutive, right? So they'd be, they'd be run at the same time. And as a result of that, she said the most you can get is 30 years. 32 because of the aggravated identity theft. She's the most you can get is 32 years if you lost at trial, most likely. And I was just like, okay, she said the only thing you can do is cooperate. That's your only chance is to cooperate against people that she said a lot of these people in Tampa are saying, like they're saying you did this, you did this, but a lot of them are saying they did nothing. She goes, so those people who have already told on you she, or cooperate against you, she said they – if you cooperate against them and um, and uh, implicate them, she said, then I can I can get you a what's called a a five k one. So you get sentenced and you get a five k one and you get a reduction in your sentence. And I was like, okay, well, how much can I get? She says, well, that's not really how it works. The way it works is this: you cooperate, then when you go to then they give you your PSI, your pre sentence report, which states, hey, this guy's looking at fifteen years. Then you get in front of the judge and the judge says, okay, he's going to get 15 years. And the U.S. attorney says, yes, your honor, we're suge- we're we're recommending he gets 15 years, which is what the PSI says he should get. A PSI is just, it's a calculation of what you should get. So of what your time, you know, based on the sentencing guidelines, you know, where you fall. So he should get 15 years. I'm using this as a hypothetical. He should get 15 years, but he cooperated. And as a result of his cooperation, we want you to reduce his sentence. And then they make a suggestion, 40%, 50%. They typically don't do it by percentage. They typically do it by levels. Like we want you to knock off four levels or six levels. And then as a result of that, your time obviously comes down. So if I were to have gotten 15 years and they recommended a 5K1, I probably would have ended up with Eight or nine years. Um, so that's what Millie says. That's what you need to do. You need to cooperate. And I was like, um, okay. I mean, I, I don't know. Like everybody's already rolled over on me. You know, not that that matters. Like I don't want to say, oh, I only told on them because they told on me. Like I'm ready to cut every single person's throat to get out of this situation. I'm ready to snitch rat, cooperate, whatever you want to call it on every single individual I can think of to get out of this situation. And it is an absolute cowardly thing to do and the brightest thing you can do in the situation. Like I'll deal with people giving me some shit to get a chunk of time knocked off. So with that said, I say, absolutely. Let's let's do it. What, what do they want to know? And she said, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to We'll tell them you're willing to cooperate, and then we'll we'll they'll probably want to talk with you. Okay, so she goes back to the U.S. Attorney, explains the situation, and then it turns out that the FBI wants to come in and sit with me for four or five days. Well, I think we wanted three or four days, three or four days with me. The Secret Service wants to sit with me for two or three days, so I've got like a week that I need to meet with these people. Um. So I, I agree at that point in the hope that I get my sentence cut. And they schedule they schedule a meeting with the Secret Service. And I go to meet the Secret Service and explain exactly what happened. By that point, by the way, by this point, I've been moved from a, um, Union City Detention Center, uh, which is for the U.S. Marshals, and the U.S. Marshals have moved me to Atlanta City Detention Center, 
because the U.S. attorney also wanted me to be interviewed by uh, Dateline NBC. So it's funny because when I got to the detention center, as soon as I got there, it, um, Dateline NBC ran a story on me called The Thief of Hearts. And the story was an interview and it was an interview and reenactments with uh, Rebecca Halk. Because by this point, Becca, you know, Rebecca, the, one of my co-defendants, had been caught. And she cooperated with uh, the authorities and with Dateline. And they did an interview. And it just paints me as this guy that is like this – I'm like a Don Juan. I go in. I swoop women off their feet. I convince them to fall in love with me. Oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot. Single mothers. They're, they have this thing about single mothers. At that time in the press – Single mothers was a big deal. Like it was trending. So they were like, he's taking advantage of, he's, he targets single mothers. He convinces them to fall in love with him. He convinces them to commit fraud for them. And then he takes all the money and he leaves them to go to prison. That was the whole take. It was called the thief of hearts. And I come off like a real scoundrel. I mean, as if I don't come off like a scoundrel already. This put the na final nail in the coffin. So, yeah, so I've got the U.S. attorney. I got the FBI, U.S. attorney, Secret Service, and Dateline. They all want to interview me at this point. And they, my lawyer, Millie, starts scheduling, you know, closing or, or closings, scheduling meetings. And it's so funny because I'll never forget when I was like, well, what, what's my strategy? Before I decided like to cooperate, I go, what's my strategy? And she goes, your strategy, your only strategy is tell them everything they want to know and hope for the best. She goes, that's your only strategy. Like she was very clear. But, you know, in her defense, like she didn't mount like a defense for me because in her defense, I was defenseless. Like I completely buried myself. There was nothing I could do but cooperate or take what she was saying was 15 years. Ultimately, it was 32 years. Like she thought, oh, you're looking at around 15 because she doesn't know what they're asking for. But the truth is they asked for 32 years and I'll explain that in the next video. So basically, I'm now supposed to go to meet with the, I think it was the Secret Service first. And uh, I'll tell you all about that. That's a hilarious, that, so at this point, this whole video thus far has been completely depressing. But- the next video is actually going to be funny because that's when I'm talking with the Secret Service, the FBI. I meet the FBI agent that I called while I was on the run and mocked. Bad idea. Bad idea. Uh, so all of these, uh, all of this kind of starts to come to a head and you'll see how I end up getting a, a 26 years. And yeah, it's a, uh, the next videos should be fucking hilarious. That's it. I appreciate it. And check out the next video and I'll see you.